Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the arrest of a Wall Street Journal reporter in Russia by the FSB, who was charged with spying in an obvious effort by Putin to cower the foreign press, who at any moment could be arrested for the crime of reporting, just as the Russian people can be arrested for the crime of calling the special military operation in Ukraine a war. Joining us is David Satter, a professor at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, who's been one of the world's leading commentators on Russian affairs for more than four decades. He was a Moscow correspondent for the Financial Times from 1976 to 1982, and has written several books about Russia, including Age of Delirium, The Decline and Fall of the Soviet Union, and The Less You Know, The Better You Sleep, Russia's Road to Terror and Dictatorship under Yeltsin and Putin. And in December of 2013, he was expelled from Russia, where he had been accredited as a Radio Liberty correspondent, becoming the first U.S. journalist to be barred from Russia since the Cold War. Then, with 8,100 gallons of latex emulsion spilled into the Delaware River, threatening drinking water in Pennsylvania, and a barge carrying 1,400 tons of methanol submerged in the Ohio River, we will assess the growing threat of pollution from the transportation of hazardous chemicals, many used in the manufacture of plastics. Joining us is Will Bunch, who is an award-winning national opinion columnist for the Philadelphia Inquirer, who blogs at attitude.com, that's A-T-T-Y-T-O-O-D.com. He's the author of The Burn Identity, A Search for Bernie Sanders and the New American Dream, and most recently, After the Ivory Tower Falls, How College Broke the American Dream and Blew Up Our Politics and How to Fix It. We'll discuss his latest article at the Philadelphia Inquirer, Water Scare Latest Attack on Pennsylvania by Plastics, and how the boom in manufacturing plastics is the plan B for the oil and gas giants like Shell. Then finally, with the Prime Ministers of India and Israel participating in Biden's Summit for Democracy, in spite of Modi trying to jail the leader of the opposition on trumped-up charges, while Netanyahu is trying to take over Israel's independent judiciary in order to stay out of jail. We will examine what can be done to stop the scourge of far-right religious nationalism undoing the world's biggest democracy, and a country that prides itself on being the only democracy in the Middle East. Joining us is Dr. Sumit Ganguly, who holds the Rabindranath Tagore Chair in Indian Cultures and Civilizations at Indiana University, His books include Fearful Symmetry, India and Pakistan Under the Shadow of Nuclear Weapons, India Since 1980, India, Pakistan and the Bomb, Debating Nuclear Stability in South Asia, and his latest book is The Oxford Handbook of India's National Security. And we'll discuss his article at Foreign Policy Magazine, How Modi and Bibi Built a Military Alliance. And before we start today's program, we're just learning now that Donald J. Trump, the former president of the United States, was indicted in Manhattan just a moment ago for his role in paying hush money to a porn star. So that, of course, is a huge breaking story, which we'll cover in depth on our next program, which will be on Sunday. And before we begin, I would like to thank our sustaining listeners whose continued and growing support for background briefing enable us to remain independent without corporate underwriting, commercials, paywalls, or constant fundraising as we deliver a daily news analysis by seeking out the most knowledgeable experts closest to the scene to explore three or more major stories and issues in depth with our sound bites and spin. 
as a dangerous and devious serial liar and selfish sociopath continues to haunt our politics and poison our social discourse, whose angry and armed followers assault our democracy and attempt to impose a tyranny of the minority in lockstep with their fraudulent wannabe mob boss and Fuhrer, your monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our tax-deductible non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation at publictruthmedia.org contribute to an informed citizenry needed to protect and defend the will of the majority as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is David Satter, a professor at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, who has been one of the world's leading commentators on Russian affairs for more than four decades. He was the Moscow correspondent of the Financial Times from 1976 to 1982, and has written several books about Russia, including Age of Delirium, The Decline and Fall of the Soviet Union, and The Less You Know, The Better You Sleep, Russia's Road to Terror and Dictatorship under Yeltsin and Putin. And in December of 2013, he was expelled from Russia, where he had been accredited as a Radio Liberty correspondent, becoming the first U.S. journalist to be barred from Russia since the Cold War. Welcome to Background Briefing, David Satter. Glad to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us, David. And now the FSB, the Russian Internal Security Force, has arrested a U.S. journalist working for the Wall Street Journal, Evan Gershkovich on spying charges. So uh, that has a familiar ring, right? And what's your response? Well, uh, my response is that they're creating intolerable conditions for journalists in Moscow. And their interpretation of spying is, of course, something that they invent at any moment, uh, depending on what what is convenient for them. Uh, If they're going to treat any type of normal journalistic activity as spying, it makes no sense for Western correspondents to be in Moscow. Uh, and uh, uh, I think that's the lesson we should take for, take for this. Well, that um, may be the intention, David. It may be the intention, but it also has a, a disadvantages for the Russians. You have to understand that in, in, in this situation, they're going to try to marshal outside support. And one of the ways they do that is by creating at least an impression, and it's a false impression, of normality. The presence of those correspondents in Moscow, uh, reporting from Moscow without being able actually uh, to uh, get the full truth or even a partial truth, uh, creates an impression that diplomatically and politically actually is... uh, uh, to the advantage of the Russian authorities, and they, 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 it's I think the 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 duty now of the world journalistic community to make it clear to them that that's not going to work. Uh, they can't uh, uh, they can't do the kind of thing they're doing, and this might be the best way to get get uh, Evan Gershkovitz out of prison, which is where he is right now. Uh, the, uh, you know, who knows what, in fact, uh, he was doing uh, in uh, Yekaterinburg, but uh, you can be sure it was nothing that by any sane person would describe as, as espionage. 
No, apparently he was looking into covering uh, the activities of the Wagner Group. At least that's... that's and we... people's, people's attitudes toward them as well. Right. Uh, but, uh, you know, if, if, if they can't, uh, if he's unable to report even on s- something as legitimate as popular attitudes uh, toward what is uh, a mercenary formation, then, then, you know, what, what really can they do in Moscow under existing conditions? The uh, many of many of many of the Russian publications, liberal Russian publications, have drawn the conclusion that it's impossible to work inside of Russia and have left. And if this is the way they're going to behave toward Westerners, I think that we probably have to draw the same conclusion as well. Well, essentially, they're making normal reporting a crime. Uh, but they've also, yeah. as far as the Russian people are concerned, they can be arrested for the crime of calling the special military operation in Ukraine a war. So this is well, just an extension of yeah, the Orwellian state, isn't it? Yes, it is. But the average Russian person uh, doesn't have an effect on world opinion. Uh, the the what What foreign correspondents do does help to shape the impression of Russia. And remember, we're in a situation in which there's not only a military struggle, there's also a political struggle. And part of that political struggle is uh, the effort by the Russians to give the impression to the degree that they can, that what they're doing is legitimate. Uh, The presence of, of Western correspondents in Moscow, unable to report in any serious manner, uh, but nonetheless, uh, you know, uh, communicating the Russian point of view uh, is uh, not to the advantage of the West. It's not legitimate. It gives a misleading impression. And uh, it also could be used by Russian propaganda, if not at least indirectly. So, David, are you calling then for the Western press corps to just get out of Russia? I mean... The State Department is warning Americans, and they've been warning now for the last month, to get out because it's dangerous. You can be literally arrested and held for ransom. That's well, what's going well on. that's that's what's happened. That's what I fear has happened to this uh, Wall Street Journal journalist. And uh, I mean, I, what I would like to see at least is for the entire Western press corps to threaten to leave and to see if that can't get him out. Uh, because I think that they, the Russian authorities don't want that, but, uh, and it's, uh, it's, uh, also a test of what we're ready to tolerate. Uh, I mean, it would be not the right sign if he's, if, if he is in prison and charged with treason, uh, it would not be, uh, the right sign for West for Western uh, journalists to, you know, to treat this as business as usual. Well, he's being charged by the FSB at, for uh, espionage. So, he's you know, charged you, you, by the by the Russian government. I mean, the FSB is part of the Russia. Is, right, is not. Yeah. Right, but I mean, and, saying uh, it's espionage, it's not treason. And frankly, the only way you'll probably get him out because the Russians aren't going to back down from charging a Westerner for spying. 
because that's a part of their whole paranoid narrative. They're probably angling for another spy swap like they did with the the basketball player who they swapped for Victor Boot. So is it possible that there's a connection here with the recent arrest in The Hague of Victor Ferreira, who was unmasked as a GRU operative? His real name is Sergei Cherkasov. Yeah, uh, who, who by be, the way, was it? Uh, he was a graduate student at Johns Hopkins. I don't know whether you ever ran into him. No, I never did. But, but there could be a connection. This right. is uh, unfortunately the, the way they're operating now, and I don't think uh, you, the the uh, we can't really provide hostages to them, and we cannot. Uh, give the impression that there's a normal journalistic environment in Moscow if anybody uh, who reports in a normal way is uh, vulnerable to being picked up and and uh, thrown in a Russian prison. So is there any sense of strategy here on the part of the West? I mean, well, we'll j- soon journalists find out. Are, are competitive, aren't they? I mean... Are they going to uh, get to? Well, uh, the we'll soon find out. We'll soon find out uh, what the response will be. But uh, certainly, uh, what I think would not be the right thing to do is to just treat this as a normal occurrence and uh, continue reporting from Moscow and from Russia as we have uh, up until now. The uh, the the, the Western journalists have already accepted limitations on their reporting because many of the people they can talk to uh, are intimidated by the threat of arrest if they even mention uh, that this so-called special military operation is a war, even though that fact is obvious. So, they, so they've gone from you know, doing, taking, making an effort to dry up the sources of information to attacking those who are collecting the information. Well, what's the point of continuing with that? Doesn't that make a uh, journalistic coverage uh, in Russia nothing but a charade? Uh, that's the way it looks. And you can cover Russia from outside, but uh, and it may it may you know. And if that's uh, the only way to get really uh, truthful information about what's going on then maybe that's the way to do it. And that's what the alternative, the very few alternative media outlets like TV, Rain, Echo of Moscow Radio. Well, they are no longer in it. Those liberal uh, Russian uh, journalistic organizations are no longer reporting from Moscow. Sure, and the Via Gazeta as well. So they, they still seem to have good sources within Russia. So... That's that. What needs to be done because there's no point in having. The only reason that the Western press are there is because they serve Putin's purposes. So, it makes more well, sense. Well, they should. Cease, they need to cease cease doing that. Uh, they they should not operate under under these uh, agree to operate under these conditions. And there is a hope. I mean, it's not a a, a big hope, but it's a possibility that uh, the, the, the threat of, of the withdrawal uh, en masse of 
the uh, Western Press Corps could be enough pressure to uh, to get this uh, this reporter freed. At least that's what I would hope. Right. Well, I'm a little skeptical of that, David, because it, it involves the charge of espionage, and they, Russia is a security state people. run by a former KGB guy. I mean, they they live and the, breathe all this paranoid nonsense, don't they? So that, well, they, they, they do, indoctrinate their people with the idea that, you know, the Westerners are all a bunch of spies and they're out to get us and the world is out to get us well, and all this, you know. That's part of that's part of the reason he was he was arrested, was also to to, to spread that message inside uh, Russia. But as far as uh, you know, they've made accusations in the past uh, of of espionage and subsequently let people go. So it's not out of the question. But uh, uh, you know, clearly, the, among other things, there I think they're clearly trying to do two things: one, angling for another trade, and which would be lopsided in, in to their advantage, the exchange of someone who's completely innocent for someone who's completely guilty. But uh, beyond that, uh, they're seeking to tighten the news around uh, Western reporting to such a degree that it may, to, as to make it meaningless. Well, it does seem that, uh, I mean, I, I don't know that there is a connection, but it seems like a coincidence that the U.S. just rolled up this illegal, this John Hopkins graduate student, Victor Ferreira, who was sent to Brazil by the GRU, the military intelligence of, of Russia, where he developed a uh, Brazilian identity, and all the while, of course, is uh, Sergei Chukasov yeah. from uh, Kaliningrad. Yeah. And apparently they, he was on a fast track. He goes to Johns Hopkins, and then he gets a job at the uh, International Criminal Court in The Hague, obviously somewhere where they wanted to, Russians wanted to plant him. Yeah. Um, that seems, as I say, it's more a coincidence. It may not be tied in, but this is what this game is about. And, you know, that it was a Cold War game as well. And I guess we have a new Cold War. Well, I mean, what we have is a criminal regime uh, that, uh, you know, violates all the norms of, of, of existing civilized behavior. Uh, it's a little bit different than the Cold War, which was, you know, which pitted really two blocks uh, world in worldwide, uh, you know, military, ideological, and political competition. But, but uh, uh, this is, uh, you know, a kind of criminal state that the the world has to deal with. Nonetheless, yeah, but obviously, uh, uh, you know, even during the Cold War, you know, we had correspondents in Moscow, and they did, they did, they wouldn't just seize a correspondent. Uh, uh, although there were cases, in fact, in which they set up provocations for correspondence, but uh, they were carefully, much more carefully prepared than this this incident appears to have been. Well, you were there from seventy six to eighty two for the Financial Times. Yeah, no, no. Then there were there were there were cases there was of of people who were. Uh, accused of taking secret information from Soviet citizens. And then they were eventually released. It was Nicholas Daniloff. There was, uh, 
There were, uh, you know, the U.S. News and World Report uh, correspondent, and uh, there were other such cases. But um, the uh, in those cases, there was a desire, I think, to th- those were intended to intimidate ordinary Soviet citizens more than anything else, as well as to keep Western journalists uh, cautious. In this case, there's a little bit of a difference because uh, there doesn't seem to be even even an attempt to make it plausible. You have a, 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 a journalist uh, going to... Uh, Yekaterinburg, which is still a major city, to talk to Russian people about what they think about one of the you know the most important factors in the present war, which is the Wagner mercenary group, uh, and uh, to say that he then, you know, he, he he that he received secret information about a military factory to which he had no access, and uh, about whose existence he probably knew nothing. Uh, because it's not a simple matter to know where those factories are, and it's even uh, more difficult to get into them or to receive information about them. So uh, I think we could we can assume that he was doing what he claimed, what the Wall Street Journal has said he was doing, which was going there to sound you know to sound out uh, the attitudes of the public. Well, the, just. Uh, think- just in closing, though, we're running out of time, David. I just wanted to, to see whether, since the Wall Street Journal is owned by News Corp, uh, run by the Murdoch family, is there anything that News Corp could do? I mean, after all, Fox News is number one personality. Tucker Carlson spouts Russian propaganda and, and Putin talking points around the clock. So maybe they should get uh, Tucker Carlson to give Putin a call to get the journalist out of the pokey. I don't think it'll work that way. I don't think it would work that way, much as they undoubtedly value Tucker Carlson's uh, comments. They probably feel that he's kind of on automatic pilot and will uh, continue saying these things regardless of what happens to a Wall Street Journal correspondent. Uh, they, uh, and uh, let's face it, they, they are not that deeply immersed in the international, in the internal American political situation, uh, particularly when they've got a war on their hands, which they started. So just in closing, then, your sense is that there's nothing that Murdoch's can do, there's nothing that the State Department can do except except swap a real spy for an innocent uh, journalist? Is that the situation? Well, yeah, but they're, they're, yeah, I wouldn't recommend doing that at the present time. I think that you this is uh, another way of putting pressure on the United States. and But the... The, the the only the only leverage that I see is uh, the reaction of Western correspondents in Moscow and their employers, you know, whether to pull them out or not. I uh, that that would 
be, in my view, the most feasible way of bringing some sort of pressure to bear, because after all, uh, you know, the if the if those correspondents were there in Moscow, it was because the government wanted them to be there, and if they pull out uh, collectively. It will make uh, certain aspects of Russian propaganda, including influencing people like Tucker Carlson, that much more difficult. Well, David Satter, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. I'm glad to talk to you. Take care, Ian. You too. And again, I'll be speaking with David Satter, who's a professor at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, who has been one of the world's leading commentators on Russian affairs for more than four decades. He was the Moscow correspondent of the Financial Times from 1976 to 1982 and has written several books about Russia, including Age of Delirium, The Decline and Fall of the Soviet Union, and The Less You Know, The Better You Sleep, Russia's Road to Terror and Dictatorship under Yeltsin and Putin. And in December of 2013, he was expelled from Russia, where he had been accredited as a Radio Liberty correspondent, becoming the first U.S. journalist to be barred from Russia since the Cold War. We're going to take a brief station break and back look into the growing threat of pollution from the transportation of hazardous chemicals, many used for the manufacture of plastics, and how the boon in manufacturing plastics is the plan B for the oil and gas giants like Shell. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Will Bunch, who is an award-winning national opinion columnist for the Philadelphia Inquirer, who blogs at attitude.com, that's A-T-T-Y-T-O-O-D.com. He's the author of The Burn Identity, A Search for Bernie Sanders and the New American Dream, and most recently, After the Ivory Tower Falls, How College Broke the American Dream and Blew Up Our Politics and How to Fix It. And his latest article at the Philadelphia Inquirer is Water Scare, Latest Attack on Pennsylvania by Plastics. Welcome to Background Briefing, Will Bunch. Yeah, Ian, thanks for having me back. I appreciate it. Well, thanks for joining us, Will. And uh, you mentioned the the movie The Graduate. where uh, (laughs) It's hard not to when you write a plastic. The the cuckolded um, husband... (laughs) Of the of the mother he has an affair with advises Benjamin to get into plastics, but plastics are haunting now where you are. I mean, basically, eight thousand one hundred gallons of hazardous chemicals were spilled in Lower Bucks County, and they've entered the Delaware River, and they're threatening the main water plant for Philadelphia. And apparently, there's been a massive run on bottled waters. Right? Have you stocked up? <laughs> no, no. Well, first of all, I, I, I luck, fortunately I live in the county that's right adjacent to Philadelphia, so I'm not on the same water supply. Now, now, um, uh, since I wrote uh, posted that column a couple days ago, um, they've given an all clear for people in Philadelphia to drink the tap water. They said based on their testing that um, if any contamination apparently didn't didn't enter that plant, but. Um, but I, but I wanted to write a piece about 
plastics because um, there's been a big surge in activity, at least where I am in Pennsylvania. And it's, it's related to really a global phenomenon, which is um, a lot of people forget or don't think about the fact that, you know, plastics is really have surged globally. Plastics production has doubled in the last 20 to 25 years or so. And, uh, you know, people forget that the main component of plastics uh, is, is fossil fuels. You know, historically it's been made from oil. And what's been happening lately is th- there's another process in which plastic can be manufactured from ethane, a byproduct of fracking. Um, in Pennsylvania, where I live, is an epicenter of fracking, you know, for natural gas. Well, natural gas prices plummeted, but, uh, you know, big oil and gas realizes there's money to be made in making plastic from this ethane. So you're seeing more and more activity. You're seeing more and more trains carrying chemicals that are being used for the um, plastics making process. Uh, You're seeing more production at these plants, and, and we're seeing all kinds of pollution problems as the result of that. Well, isn't there a brand new plant uh, that Shell have invested six billion in? A plastic plant on the Ohio River, north of Pittsburgh. Yes. On the other side, I'm in Philadelphia. On the other side of the state, just north and a little bit west of Pittsburgh, Shell spent, like you said, six billion dollars on this plant. It was um, it was one of Donald Trump's favorite projects. He visited the site while it was under construction, and the whole reason this plant was sited in western Pennsylvania was to be near where there's a lot of fracking activity and where a lot of fracking wells have been dug. And um, like I said, uh, the market for the actual natural gas, which is the intended idea of these fracking projects, wasn't really taken off. So uh, now they're trying to to divert it to plastics. And and when you think about plastics, you know, they're they're being used to make toys, they're being used for packaging. a lot of it isn't necessary. You know, a lot of packaging is excessive, right? A lot of, a lot of, a lot of plastic is being dumped on developing countries, you know, in, in the global South and places like that. Um, but big oil and big gas is determined to make this uh, into a market for its, for its product, you know, for its raw product. So um, uh, like I said, in Pennsylvania, j- just think about the last few months. Well, this shelf plant is opened. And it's been an environmental disaster. Um, you know, the state the state set a, an annual limit for air pollution, uh, which was probably too high to begin with. But uh, it turned out the plant exceeded that annual limit in its first like six weeks or so of operation. Uh, you know, they're having these flaring incidents where uh, the sky is lit up orange at night and there are these horrible smells. And uh, neighbors of this plant are really freaked out. Um, Meanwhile, about 20 miles or so away from this plant is East East Palestine, Ohio, which actually is right on the border with Pennsylvania. And, uh, you know, your listeners know what happened there, the big toxic train wreck. Well, uh, you know, vinyl chloride, the the material that was the most dangerous material that had to be burned off in that train spill, again, is, you know, used for plastics production to make you know, PVC, polyvinyl chloride pipes and, and, and things of that nature. Um, so if you live in that area, you know, your air, your water is under attack from these products and byproducts of plastics manufacturing. And now, and now here in Philadelphia, you know, that spill 
that you mentioned of the 8,000 gallons of chemicals. Again, it was a plant that makes plastic polymers that are used in various industrial product uh, processes. You know, and, and the thing is, we don't really think about whether we even need all these plastic, pro- you know, some people are thinking about it. There's environmentalists, there's, there are groups like there's a group beyond plastics that's working to try and reduce plastics production and, and make it safer. But, uh, and, and maybe this will gain more momentum as we, as we have more of these pollution incidents. Well, there are efforts to stop, you know, people having plastic bags at supermarkets and replacing yep. them with uh, paper bags. But you've seen lots and lots of pictures of marine life being choked and, you know, whales ingesting massive amounts of plastics. So it's really screwing up the ocean ecosystems. Yeah, yeah. you know, you have, yeah, you have these gigantic blobs of plastic like out in the Pacific Ocean uh, on, on your side of the world. Um, and also, you know, these plastics facilities like the one in Pittsburgh, um, you know, they, they make, they end up producing billions, I mean, literally, of these tiny little plastic pellets that somehow get loose from the, they get loose from the, the production process and they go out, get out into the environment. And so, you know, people go on these streams near plastic facilities with like ladles and they just scoop up, you know, hundreds of these little plastic nurdles that are just really strangling the environment. It's, it's really, it's really one of the most worst things for the ecology that you can have, have going. And, and the point is, you know, Again, we, there are lots of ways we can reduce the amount of plastic that we produce. You know, like like you said, I mean, banning plastic bags is one step. You know, this this group I mentioned, Beyond Plastics, they're they're lobbying the EPA to try and uh, ban the use of vinyl chloride. You know, that there are many substitutes where where vinyl chloride doesn't have to be used in the industrial process, and you know, given given the danger that we saw in East Palestine from this train wreck and the fact that, you know, trains carrying this material are crisscrossing the country all, all the time. Um, you know, it's, it's a good idea. It's already been banned in aerosol products. Uh, you know, why, why not ban it in other products as well? But your article at the Philadelphia Inquirer, Will Bunch, Order Scare, Latest Attack on Pennsylvania by Plastics, you say the problem is that big oil and gas, with its massive war chest, lobbyists and campaign contributions, remains committed to pushing cheap plastics in developing parts of the world, such as Africa and Asia, as part of what is called Plan B for the industry, determined to keep drilling even as traditional uses of fossil fuels fade. So talk about Plan B. Yeah, well, you know, obviously Plan A for fossil fuels has been, uh, you know, life life as we've known it in the 20th century and early 21st century, um, you know, using it to power our cars, using fossil fuels so to provide most of our electricity. I mean, those obviously are the two two biggest and best known uses. And, and um, you know, there, there's real momentum now to, to undo that, you know, whether it's, um, you know, generating wind or solar energy or other other forms of clean or alternative energy and um, electric you know, cars. As you as you guys out in California are leading the way on on electric cars and and you know uh, you know we're getting close closer and closer to the time when electric cars are going to probably dominate 
a highway. And so if you're Shell or if you're, you know, ExxonMobil or any one of these other giant oil companies, you've got a problem, right? Because you're, you know, you've invested in drilling for oil and natural gas all over the world. And, you know, I mean, I mean, like I said, Pennsylvania is the perfect example of plan B because here these wells are also producing this product, ethane, that, you know, no one had ever heard of 10 years ago, but, but now it's like, hey, there's ethane and we can use this to make plastic. And all of a sudden, um, uh, you know, in addition to the shell plant, there have been a number of other proposals to, to locate these large plastic plants in Pennsylvania. And, you know, first of all, um, it, it's bad from a, from a climate change point of view. You know, these plants are big producers of greenhouse gases. Um, so, so it's just bad in that sense. And then just the traditional forms of pollution, just, you know, making the air dirty and smelly, you know, the, these spills that are, occurring, that are occurring in waterways, whether it's an accidental chemical spill like we had near Philadelphia or whether it's these plastic nurdles that are escaping into the environment. Or today, uh, well, and, on the Ohio River, a barge holding 1,400 metric tons of methanol uh, broke off and uh, is now submerged. So it's happening all over, these spills. Right. Yeah, and you know, I mean, as we all know, over the last um, 10, 12, 15 years or so, really, really since the Barack Obama years, you know, we've seen the United States rise rise globally as a, as a producer of fossil fuels, oil and natural gas, you know, for, for all the talk about going carbon neutral and, and uh, you know, fighting climate change and, and, and ending fossil fuels. You know, the reality is, you know, fossil fuel production in this country has, has risen dramatically, you know, um, and the more fossil fuels we produce, the more it's got to be transported whether it's by train or whether it's by um, barge or whether it's by pipelines, all of the, you know, and, and remember we've had some huge pipeline spills this year, including the Keystone pipeline had a big spill just a couple months ago. So all, all of these modes of transmission are, are having accidents and, and, and we're seeing really, really horrible pollution incidents. And, you know, like I said, here in Philadelphia, we had a situation where, people in the sixth largest city in the country were afraid to drink their tap water and, and stores throughout the entire region have absolutely no bottled water because people, people were too panicked to, to drink what was coming out of their tap. Just in closing, I might add, Will, that uh, meanwhile, oil companies are enjoying their record profits, I think, in history. Shell, ExxonMobil, they're all posting record profits. Right, absolutely, and um, these companies will do anything to keep that going, and uh, and and that's why that's why they have so much money to invest on on this plan B. That's where they get the six billion dollars to build a facility like this plant in, in Western Pennsylvania. And you know, unfortunately, we're seeing some of the bitter fruits of that investment. Well, I thank you for joining us here today, Will Bunch. Thank you, and thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. 
And again, I've been speaking with Will Bunch, who's an award-winning national opinion columnist for the Philadelphia Inquirer. He blogs at attitude.com, that's A-T-T-Y-T-O-O-D.com, and he's the author of The Burn Identity, A Search for Bernie Sanders and the New American Dream, and most recently, After the Ivory Tower Falls, How College Broke the American Dream and Blew Up Our Politics and How to Fix It. And his latest article at the Philadelphia Inquirer is Water Scare, Latest Attack on Pennsylvania by Plastics. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into the scourge of far-right religious nationalism undoing the world's biggest democracy, India and Israel. Don't go near the water Don't you think it's sad What's happened to the water Our water's going bad Oceans, rivers, lakes and streams Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Dr. Simit Ganguly, who holds the Rabindranath Tagore Chair in Indian Cultures and Civilizations at Indiana University. His books include Fearful Symmetry, India and Pakistan Under the Shadow of Nuclear Weapons, India Since 1980, India, Pakistan and the Bomb, Debating Nuclear Stability in South Asia. And his latest book is The Oxford Handbook of India's National Security. And he has an article at Foreign Policy Magazine, How Modi and Bibi Built a Military Alliance. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dr. Sumit Ganguly. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, as it happened uh, yesterday, as a part of uh, President Biden's second uh, summit for democracy, which excluded uh, NATO members Hungary and Turkey for their backsliding, they nevertheless featured... Prime Minister Modi of India, who's just jailed his opposition leader and basically is moving to create a one-party state, and uh, Bibi Netanyahu, uh, who also addressed the Summit for Democracy. And, of course, he's under political pressure at home because he's trying to essentially neuter the courts in order to stay out of jail, quite frankly. So the idea that they're also... (laughs) creating a military alliance, of course, is something of a surprise to me. So explain what's going on there. The term military alliance is perhaps a bit overwrought, and it was used by an editor at Foreign Policy. I did not uh, draft it. Uh, But uh, it is basically a tacit alliance. Um, India does not believe in formal alliances. India eschews formal alliances, but uh, there is considerable uh, military-to-military contact between India and Israel, substantial numbers of weapon sales, uh, training, uh, joint training of forces, cooperation on counterterrorism. So it in many ways has the features of a military alliance, even though it formally cannot be called that. So does India have a military alliance with Russia, its main supplier of weaponry? No, it does not. It had something resembling an alliance between 1971 and 1991, owing to the 20-year 
agreement of peace, friendship, and cooperation. It was notionally renewed in 1991, but no one in New Delhi believed for a moment that it would have the same ramifications that the original treaty had. But nevertheless, links have been made between the fact that that uh, India is sitting on the fence vis-a-vis condemning uh, Ukraine and the U.S., of course, is a part of the quad with India. So I don't imagine that Biden wants to pressure Modi too much, and that's probably why he invited him on this panel to talk about democracy, even though Modi's undoing democracy. But I would think that India must be having second thoughts now about its reliance on Russia for its weaponry if in the face of the obvious closeness now between uh, China and Russia, where you always had this junior partner, Putin, and Xi meeting uh, just uh, recently in Moscow and and deepening their, their alliances. So are there any second thoughts going on in uh, New Delhi? I would be shocked if there is no discussion underway in New Delhi about India's dependence on Russia for an entire range of weaponry uh, from aircraft to rifles. Uh, Because um, first, as you correctly pointed out, the uneven performance, and that's perhaps being charitable about Russia's weaponry in Ukraine. Uh, Second, um, the fact that there are significant bottlenecks that Russia faces, uh, given uh, the sanctions uh, that have been imposed on Russia in terms of its ability to produce weaponry, and um, uh, consequently, Uh, its ability to then supply uh, India uh, with uh, uh, weaponry that it had promised or contracted to supply. Well, apparently they're not delivering. Um, I think it's fighter jets. Is it what? What's the bottleneck? Uh, The uh, principal bottleneck are fighter jets that were uh, contracted to be delivered uh, to India, and it's um, uh, far from clear that uh, the Russians will be able to deliver them as um, uh, planned. Um, uh, the, uh, uh, their ability uh, to deliver them is now at question. And furthermore, if the Indians have any uh, sense in their heads, they would um, seriously reconsider um, uh, relying so heavily on the Russians in the foreseeable um, future about uh, a plethora of weaponry uh, that they had either planned on getting or are in the pipeline. Well, if China starts supplying Russia with military weapons, which is the concern uh, from expressed by Blinken and the, the Biden White House, um, and we don't know whether that shoe will drop, there was some suggestion that there'd be a peace agreement that China floated an idea, and but uh, it looks like Putin shot that down at the meeting he had with Xi in Moscow. And since then, it doesn't look like Xi has reached out to Zelensky, who's uh, who's obviously reached out to him. So 
if in the event that China decides to help Russia out in Ukraine by supplying weapons, what would India do then? I mean, it's got to be staring them in the face, right? Their enemy, China, is in cahoots with their friend Russia. Uh, This is something that the Indians were desperately trying to avoid uh, by not giving uh, any um, grief to Russia on the invasion of uh, Ukraine. That that was one of the key factors that uh, had led to Indian restraint uh, in terms of rebuking or upbraiding Russia. And this policy has failed abjectly. Um, Russia right now is so isolated, so desperate, that um, it has readily turned to China. And so this notion that India would be able to prevent a condominium involving Russia and China has uh, proven to be a chimera. So Sumit Ganguly, let's talk about the reason I called you, which was because of uh, of yesterday's Summit for Democracy in, in Washington, D.C., where Biden spoke to representatives of about 120 countries, including Democratic backslider, the Prime Minister of Israel, Netanyahu, and the Prime Minister of India, Modi. Now, he's jailed the opposition leader, Rahul Gandhi, based upon a remark that Gandhi made in 2019 that's been deemed insulting to the Prime Minister? Is there literally a law against saying something nasty about a political leader in India? India has inherited a set of colonial-era laws dealing with libel and defamation, which are actually quite stringent. Um, And uh, they can be invoked when um, uh, desirable, Uh, And uh, someone in Modi's home state of Gujarat chose to um, uh, uh, use that law to go after a statement which probably was a bit maladroit on um, uh, the part of uh, Rahul Gandhi, uh, which he had made in parliament. And consequently, uh, uh, the judge ruled in favor of the um, uh, of the plaintiff and gave Rajiv Gandhi thirty uh, sorry Rahul Gandhi thirty days to appeal and uh, while Rahul Gandhi was in the process of appealing it the Speaker of the House disqualified um, uh, Rahul Gandhi um, and I think on somewhat dubious uh, grounds and. In the meanwhile, Rahul Gandhi has also been told that he has less than 30 days to vacate his official bungalow uh, in New Delhi now that he's not a member of of the parliament. So um, all this is an effort on the part of Modi uh, to cripple Rahul Gandhi as the principal leader of the opposition party um, the uh, Indian National Congress. So 
There's no immunity then for speeches you make on the floor in Parliament, you know, which is not, which is certainly the case in many other parliaments and, and here in the U.S. Congress. That is correct. That is correct, especially if you uh, make um, uh, some make a statement that is potentially invidious or defamatory. I mean, what Modi's done is that. He's sentenced him for two, or he's been sentenced for two years in jail, which apparently disqualifies him for 10 years for any post of, in political leadership. So he's uh, put him out of the game. He's put literally shut down the opposition leader. That's the bottom line, isn't it? Not yet, because uh, it's possible that a higher court to which uh, uh, Rahul Gandhi has appealed uh, might stay the order of the lower court and thereby enable him to return to parliament. Um, But the thrust of what you said is correct. That is the goal that um, uh, Modi has in mind. And specifically, what did Rahul Gandhi say? He said that isn't it odd that so many people with the last name of Modi are fleeing justice uh, from India uh, and um, are taking refuge as fugitives in foreign countries. And of course, then there is, I believe he said something to the effect, the principal thief, um, uh, uh, another Modi, or words to that effect. And that's what landed him uh, in trouble and in court. So if Biden doesn't want to call him out, and and Biden made a fairly lukewarm criticism of Netanyahu, who's obviously trying to undo democratic checks and balances in Israel by neutering the court so that he can stay out of jail, Biden made fairly lukewarm criticism of him, and that's that's infuriated the uh, Israeli right. I guess he doesn't want to criticize Modi in any way, right? Is it because of the quad or what's the reasoning here? The principal reason behind this is that Biden is loath to criticize Modi publicly because India is much too important at the moment in terms of dealing with the challenge from the People's Republic of China throughout Asia and uh, India was always a bit of a um, shaky member of the Quad, um, and India stiffened its resolve a little bit more after the border incidents of the summer of 2020. Uh, And the last thing that uh, uh, Biden needs is for India to get wobbly on the Quad. But meanwhile, is he trying to pressure... India to change its tune over supporting Ukraine? Yes, uh, both publicly and privately, though the public criticisms have been tempered uh, for fear that this might actually have a um, an adverse effect. Uh, rather than getting India on board, it might actually make India more uh, nervous and skittish. Well, just in closing, I mean, the reason that I find it so outrageous that Modi is doing what he's doing and that the world's largest democracy is being undermined literally in the most 
brazen way by jailing the head of the opposition. I mean, that you don't get much more anti-democratic than that. Oh, and, no. and it's just, you know, I just don't understand where the pushbacks are going to come from. Is the, is the Indian press being cowered by him? What about the diaspora? Is there any pressure on India, on Modi? I mean, is there any way to get rid of him, uh, vote him out? Um, the prospects of voting him out are rather small. Elections are coming up in 2024, um, and I don't see the opposition uh, gearing up in a fashion that would enable uh, them to unseat Modi. The press, for the most part, has been cowed uh, by Modi. And um, there are a few brave souls and uh, individuals and organizations that are pushing back. But uh, Modi's uh, leadership is like a jaggernaut at the moment. and. Um, uh, consequently, uh, the prospects of unseating Modi are indeed rather slender uh, at the moment, but politics can always spring surprises on us, and one should remain open to the possibility of a surprise, though the likelihood is of uh, an upset in the elections uh, from the standpoint of today, um, seems rather small. Well, the last thing the world needs is another right-wing religious nut, particularly one leading the world's biggest democracy. And um, it's kind of depressing that there's not much that can be done about it. Uh, unfortunately, from the standpoint of today, absolutely yes. Uh, my only hope lies in the fact that India has seen dark times before, uh, and um, one uh, remains uh, hopeful that uh, this particularly dark era uh, may not be uh, India's long-term future. But that's more a hope uh, rather than uh, something based upon um, sound evidence uh, that I can adduce to you. Well, Dr. Simit Ganguly, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure. Thank you for this opportunity. And again, I've been speaking with Dr. Simit Ganguly, who holds a, the Rabindranath Tagore Chair in Indian Cultures and Civilizations at Indiana University. His books include Fearful Symmetry, India, Pakistan Under the Shadow of Nuclear Weapons, India Since 1980, India, Pakistan and the Bomb, Debating Nuclear Stability in South Asia. And his latest book is The Oxford Handbook of India's National Security. And he has an article at Foreign Policy Magazine, How Modi and Bibi Built a Military Alliance. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. 
Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone in America A quiet voice singing something to me An angel song about the home of the grave in this land here One more light goes out in the